Welcome back to Search for DOS. In this episode, we meet Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is an intellectual giant. He bridges the secular and the spiritual. If you put him into Google, you'll quickly see the massive body of work he's produced. On YouTube alone, he has over 15 million views and 219,000 subscribers. His book, Toward a Meaningful Life, has sold over 400,000 copies. And he joins us today to explore the emerging technology that we now know as generative AI and the app ChatGPT. I've been very interested, along with many others, in what the implications of this technology. And our mission on Search for DOS is to call on great minds from the Jewish tradition to unlock meaningful lessons, explore challenging ideas, and reveal personal journeys. Being able to do that with something so new to world like generative AI with someone so thoughtful and so well read, as you will uh, soon hear, like Rabbi Jacobson is very much in the wheelhouse of, of this podcast. I, I came across Rabbi Jacobson speaking about ChatGPT through the rabbi I study with, Rabbi Mendy Shohet. I asked Rabbi Mendy about ChatGPT and his thoughts, and he directed me to this talk that Rabbi Jacobson had. I was impressed with the depth and the optimism that defined his remarks on it. And I decided that it made sense to bring him on to search for DOS. Rabbi Mendy tempered my expectations, said that Rabbi Jacobson is quite famous and that it might be challenging to get him on here. I sent him a cold outreach and within 48 hours, he agreed to come on. Our conversation on AI touches some of the concerns being expressed by people like Yuval Noah Harari. We explore technologies like human cloning and whether or not that can be used as a useful case study to address the risks that AI presents. And then we step outside of AI and talk about topics that Rabbi Jacobson has spent a lot of time thinking about, most notably the soul. I set out to create Search for DOS so all of us have the ability to think deeply about topics that are making our world increasingly chaotic. And generative AI certainly has that potential and seems to be doing that. There's a lot of good that comes from change, but it also presents a lot of confusion a lot of chaos. And I think you'll find from this talk that there is, through deep thought, we can generate the optimism and the sense of agency that's needed, needed to shape incredibly powerful forces like technology. So we're, we're living in the world that we want to be living in. I am incredibly grateful for Rabbi Jacobson for making the time to speak with all of us. So without further ado, 
I give you Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Rabbi Simon Jacobson, welcome to Search for Das. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your wonderful audience. Can't thank you enough for making the time. When I set out to create Search for Das about a year ago, I had a vision of what it would be. And it certainly encapsulates what we're about to do right now, which is have someone like you who has had an unbelievable career as a thought leader, talk about a topic that is incredibly timely. And I, I want to get into that topic, which is generative AI, ChatGPT, which I heard you speak about a couple of weeks ago when the rabbi I study with on a regular basis, Rabbi Mendy Shohat, and he said, sent that to me after a class we had together. So thank you to him for putting you on my radar and for really creating this talk here. So before we jump into that, I want to understand you. I want to unlock your, your journey or a bit of it. And I'm thinking we start around your dining room table. What was it like being around your dining room table, having a father who was a journalist, transport us back to that those moments? Well, I grew up in a uh, very traditional Jewish home, a Chabad home in Crown Heights, um, where I um, went to an intense Jewish education, which was meant from seven o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night. Very intense. But at the same time, thank God, it was not a dogmatic home. My father, as you mentioned, was a journalist. My mother was very well read. So I was a house full of ideas and we were allowed to ask questions and uh, even exercise skepticism. So for me, it was really a perfect combination of, on one hand, intense, strong academic Jewish education, but while also having the ability to explore and be autonomous in many ways, didn't have that pressure of dogma or conformity to really look at many ideas in a very open-minded way. So it allowed my, uh, I guess, my free spirit to, uh, to wonder and to wander and to be curious. So for me, it was really a, a beautiful uh, uh, childhood and my teenage years. And that's what I did, I was an explorer. I uh, read all kinds of books from all different backgrounds. And it's ultimately the spirituality of Judaism specifically that resonated with me like music. And that has forever shaped my life. So what I do today, my writing, my teaching, my counseling is all informed by those uh, formative years where I had that interesting mix the question that emerges for me is since so much of your your writings and the book you uh meaningful toward a meaningful life that you wrote 
that uh, is so widely circulated, it, it focuses so much on the soul. And I'm interested, and we're going to talk about soul and as it relates to ChatGPT, but I'm interested to hear from you how much of the soul is fully baked upon coming into this world and how much is shaped by influences like parents and books and, and uh, travels you, you go on. I think for all of us, it's a combination because you have uh, a pure soul. We'll call it a uh, spiritual template, a spiritual um, so-called resource. But then life takes over. You know, I'll, I'll use a physical example. We're all, if you're born a healthy child, you're born with a healthy heart, a healthy mind, healthy body. But then when we begin to breathe toxins, and we begin to consume different foods, and we begin to be exposed to all kinds of uh, pollutants in life, it begins to somewhat clog up our arteries and affect our uh, very health. So the same is true spiritually and psychologically and emotionally. You grow up, you're born into a very pure environment, nine months in your mother's womb, but then it's your parents, it's uh, your peers, education, strangers, the media, social forces that begin to uh, take a toll in shaping you. And many of us were um, very pressured to become who we are based on our parents' expectations, for example. And if your parents happen to be, unfortunately, dysfunctional, that has bearing. So I think it's a constant combination between who you are at your core and what has been imposed upon you? What have you? What toxins have you breathed in? What traumas, what pains have you endured in life that affect and impact you? I mean, a lot of my work is helping people um, free themselves from the clutter, so they can f discover who you are, what your real voice say. When we can free it from all the impositions of others, including parents and family and so and society and ed education. What does your song sound like? You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes has this very devastating and powerful poem called The Voiceless, where he writes, alas to those who die with their song still inside them. We have a song inside of us and sometimes it gets trapped in the forces and the pressures of life. So a big part of it is trying to discover who you really are in contrast to who you've become based on other people's expectations or demands. That's beautiful imagery there. Can you think back to a moment or moments where you, you, you saw your song come out or there was uh, a feeling of uh, like, if, if I don't do this, the song won't come out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in my uh, teenage years, I was not deeply inspired by my schooling, by my education. It was fine. I was not hurt or abused or molested, but it wasn't very inspiring. And I was looking, you know, today I can look back and say, I was like a rebel without a cause. I have a lot of passion in me. I had a lot of energy. I wanted to like change the world in some way. But a lot of my education was very mediocre. It was very passive. So there was definitely forces that like in a way silenced or even quieted down my uh, 
my very deep longing, no one necessarily deliberately uh, silenced me, but it was just the forces in life. You know, when you're in a classroom, you're in a group, in a community, there are expectations. So there for sure, I felt somewhat constricted. And then on the other hand, when I remember when I began to study for the first time, we'll call it, it was called in, the, in my lingo, Hasidic thought, Hasidus, basically Jewish mysticism, spirituality. I began to learn about what does the soul look like? What are your emotions experience? How do you experience transcendence, getting beyond the here and now and surviving? So then I felt like my wings began to spread. I just felt a type of freedom, a type of euphoria even, just feeling like, oh, wow, that's what it's all about. It's like uh, living all your life in a cave. And then suddenly you go up on a mountain and you realize the horizons are so much more expansive than you could ever imagine. So I've experienced both sides of it. I have to admit that I have not been, as I said, deeply hurt like other people who've really been hurt or even abused. So I can't say that. But life is, tends, tends to be people like conformity. And it's not so easy to uh, be able to be yourself. So I went through that. And then through writing and through my writing and through my ideas, I began to think for myself, not just what others wanted me to think. Today, I like to say, you know, you want to teach people how to think, not what to think. And that's what I experienced in my younger years. And I continue to do so. But we all have to face these challenges. You go to work, there are expectations. People don't like someone standing out too much. We all like the idea of a pioneer thinking out of the box. But to be honest, most people don't really like too much out of the box, you know, with certain constraints. So to really find your voice, you have to have a courage. You have to have support. You have to have a certain deep self-confidence. So this is part of how I uh, uh, navigate and balance that. In terms of finding your voice, are there keys in, in our Jewish tradition that you think are quite helpful in, in that pursuit? Absolutely. Look, tradition and ritual rituals can also sometimes limit us because we are pressured to just follow robotically and mechanically, but they can also free us. Think of learning how to play piano or learning how to play an instrument or learning any art or any, uh, or music, there are ways to hit the keys. Judaism is really ultimately a methodology of touching the right keys that allow the spirit to soar. Just to use an example, very simple example. When you're giving, when you're charitable. So the Kabbalists would put it this way, the mystics, they'd say, you're massaging and exercising the muscle inside your soul called chesed, called love. So when you give love, you become more loving. It's like exercising any muscle. So in a sense, that's the button. When you do that, you become stronger. Just as a doctor may tell you, or a hygienist will tell you, you need to eat the right foods, get enough sleep, exercise. There's also the spiritual part, where Judaism teaches you, these are the spiritual exercises that will make you the best you can be, the healthiest you can be. And it's not physical, but it's nevertheless very relevant. The idea of love, the idea of other types of behavior, the way to think in a healthy way that allows your spirit to really express itself to the fullest and get beyond the fears and insecurities that often trap us. 
Can you think back to moments in, um, in, in your studies or early career? And I think about specifically um, your role as, as, as a, um, and I'm not going to get the right term here, but as part of the team where you were responsible for memorizing the Rebbe's sermons. Uh, can you talk about that experience and were there moments where you thought this is just such a major undertaking, the stress of this is so massive, is, it, is the juice really worth the squeeze? I think uh, from early on in my life, and especially growing up in my home, I always knew that uh, the more you want, the more the juice, as you put it, the more juice, the more squeeze is needed. To quote a Talmudic statement, that an, an olive does not produce oil until you press it. Or as some people say, you don't know how strong, we are like tea bags. You don't know how strong you are until you put into hot water. So I never lived in an illusion that you're going to get a you're going to get everything on a silver platter. That it, it is expression in the Talmud. You guide to Matsasi. The more effort, the more the results. So I've always was always had that discipline. Listen, we all have moments where we're lazier or moments that we'd like to lay back and be a little more comfortable. But frankly, um, the excellence is achieved when you work hard, when you exert yourself. Even people with great minds and with great talents. If you don't have the discipline, if you don't have the training, you don't have the rigorous and relentless pursuit, you're not going to maximize. You will not get the best results. So that's part of it, especially when you're a writer and a speaker. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work processing ideas, how to express it. You're constantly learning on the job. There's always frustration. Frustration, you know, you could have done better, or will I really get it clearly? Will I express it clearly? But that you come to learn is part of the it's part of the journey. You're not you know it's part of it. So I I see it this way. You want success, exertion and effort is going to come with it. Exertion and effort is going to be sometimes difficult. You're going to feel pressure. I don't. I'm honestly, if I didn't have pressure and timelines, I probably still not have finished my first book. You know, I'd still be waiting. Okay, next. But deadlines and pressure tend to bring out the best in you, even though we don't like it. You, you have uh, admired how you've jumped at the opportunity to interface with ChatGPT. That when I heard you speaking about that in um, your, your lecture on it, I admired your uh, decision to do that. In your first few interactions with it, do you feel like it increases your level of exertion, effort? Do you feel like this tool is going to bring the mind and uh, overall uh, output to a higher level? Well, in my case, I did not look at it as a replacement for my work or effort. I wanted to just see um, how well it does by, by entering a query and seeing what it produces. So from my experience, limited experience, you can say, I think it's like what they used to say about technology in general, junk in, junk out. Um, if you want really good results, you're going to have to put in input and really ask the right questions and input the right stuff. And as well as when you get the results, you may have to do a lot of editing. So I found it to be like a, uh, in a way, almost like a calculator. 
you know, calculator will crunch your numbers a lot quicker than you can, but you still need numbers and you still need to know how to interpret those numbers. So I think AI is not just, a, obviously, it's not just a calculator. It's a lot more qualitative. But to me, it's like an asset and a tool that can help us quickly, just like a search engine will get you information quickly, uh, chat GPT or AI in general or other forms of AI can really uh, speed up the process and as well as give you very good qualitative material that you can then, uh, it can either spark ideas or actually you can then edit. Like, you know, if I asked it to write a letter, for instance, or to write an essay on a particular topic, I would look at it and I'd probably edit it afterwards. So I don't see it as a replacement for effort. I just see it as a accelerator of uh, whatever results we have through our efforts. I think if you don't put any effort, um, the AI ultimately will be limited. Obviously, if you write in there, say, you know, give me a uh, an essay on E equals MC squared or on quantum mechanics or on uh, the modern economy, so you'll get yourself a good essay. But if you're talking about what's ultimate purpose, using it well and so on, you're going to need to have your personal input. So I think it's a, like a partner in our work, and part of that work is going to be effort. And frankly, someone is making effort of inputting all the data that AI can produce such good results as well. Let's not forget that. There have been quite a few people that have been sounding the alarm on it in terms of what where this could go. Yuval Noah Harari, who's an Israeli historian, he talks about the issue being focused on AI gaining this, uh, gaining mastery of language, which is essentially the operating system of humans. We initially thought that AI would take over uh, through nightmare scenarios like in the Matrix or in Terminator, and it'd be in the form of a physical robot. But Yuval Noah Harari thinks it's, it's actually arrived and it's come through the form of the mastery of language. He said that it's gained the master key to the human race. So, so let's, let's, let's assume that there is some, some uh, merit to his sounding of the alarm. Is there, is there examples in our tradition where we've, we've confronted serious, uh, serious challenge to, to the human race? And what are, what are some tools that we've used to navigate some real existential threats? Well, look, the one threat is having bad um, players trying to manipulate and trying to uh, produce misinformation. You know, uh, we know that a big part of any battle or war is the war over intelligence. And uh, so imagine a battle being fought between two adversaries and one is using AI to, to create a mass propaganda machine and misinformation to confuse and to, uh, um, to uh, disrupt its enemy. So that's immediately a great threat. So information once was through conventional media. Now with AI and with uh, the new modern tools, it can really take on a very much more sinister and damaging uh, attitude. So that really comes down to human beings. Like they always say, you know, people kill, not weapons. Um, technology doesn't kill anyone, but the way it's used by the people with the wrong intentions. So in the past, this has been the case. There have been 
totalitarian regimes, tyrants who had a lot of power, and give them, give them the weapons, give them the media, give them the power to control minds, they use it for very destructive purposes. Look what the Nazis did with propaganda in the last century. So the bottom line is, in the past, end of the day, we have to, growth is not going to come through technology. Technology is not going to bring peace to this world. It's going to be humans that bring peace. And we'll use technology to live up to that. You can use a sword to kill. You can use a sword for plowshare that helps other people live their lives. So in history, we have these two options. We've seen people with great power, with great information and knowledge do great things. And we've seen people use knowledge and information to hurt others. And I think those choices are here there to, today as well. And today, perhaps in, more, in a more acute and a more dangerous way because of the, these new technologies, these new tools. So, um, you know, Socrates famously said when they began to write things down on tablets, he said, that's the downfall of civilization. Because till then, people were memorizing ideas. They started writing it down on tablets. We're talking about stone tablets. When the, when the printing press came out in the 15th century, people said that's the downfall of civilization. Because instead of thinking ideas, people are going to write them down, publish them. Then when Amazon came out, I remember with Kindle, they said that's the downfall. The answer is, in all these cases, technology is neutral. You could use it to bring out and advance the most noble and highest aspirations of the human race. You can use it to destroy and manipulate each other. And that challenge has always been there. There's nothing new in the 21st century regarding that challenge. The only thing that's new is perhaps new technologies, but not this new choice. The choice has always been there and has been used in both directions. And obviously what has prevailed is, thank God, is more of a positive approach that technology in general is improving mankind, even though there are the concerns and fears that we're addressing here. Are there certain technologies that maybe are not as, that don't fit into that paradigm that you put forth uh, framework? For example, human cloning. It seems like we came to a consensus as a society, as a, as a, as a world, that human cloning is something that we should not pursue. And my understanding outside of one scientist in China who is now locked up, that, that has been followed. Is, is, is this different than, should we not follow that path? Why, why is this different? I think this is already getting into an area where you have to do it case by case. I mean, I think everybody agrees uh, in innovations like the telephone or television or the automobile or airplanes, though there's also potential for abuse, but it has been ultimately harnessed and steered, in most cases, toward the positive. Obviously, there are people who use airplanes and vehicles for weapons of war or weapons of destruction. But generally speaking, it's pretty much improved our ability to communicate, our ability to travel, our ability to process. It's where it starts, where it gets dangerous is when it starts entering the area of moral choices. Like, for example, um, you know, you mentioned cloning, genetic engineering. You know, what would stop people from basically creating a bionic man or a bionic woman and a child to tamper with its DNA because you may not like 
that that color of its hair or color of its eyes or start changing personality. So that's where people are concerned that people will start playing God. You know, if the Germans had such technologies in place during World War II, they would have tried to create this perfect Aryan race and, um, and essentially annihilate everyone else that they considered inferior. So I think when it comes to areas of what defines humanity, what defines morality, that's where you're going to have much more conflict on this topic. Um, my, my view on the matter is, it comes down to people again. I think we're intelligent enough to know that there are areas that you have to be very careful when you tread because you're dealing with the very core fabric of what defines us as humans. And we, we not necessarily should be surrendering that to, uh, to machines or to technology. So I think that's where you really need to have a very deep spiritual compass and moral, as type of moral uh, uh, GPS, if you wish, that tells you you know, we're crossing a line. We're not crossing a line. I don't know if you remember there was that book and and movie called The Island of Dr. Moroi. Moroi I think Moroi was, was, where the doctor was experimenting. It was science fiction, but he was experimenting with turning humans into animals and animals into humans. And, you know, he had noble intentions, but it ended up crossing lines that were horrible and uh, and and really ended up causing tremendous problems. Same thing, story with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, there's basically technologies that try to tamper with the very basis of who we are as humans. I think we need to have humility and know that as good as technology may get and as good as our machines may be, we still have to have a humble recognition that there's some higher authority and we're not the gods. We're not the owners of things. We're not gods. As soon as you think you're God, and put technology in a person's hands who thinks he's, he or she is God, you're, you're in for trouble. I think it's helpful for us to define what we are. And it seems like a soul is, is core to that. Could you, uh, could you walk us through what, what are we at the core? What, what makes us different than any animal or technology on, on earth? There are different models. If you speak to the, to speak to the, the evolutionary biologist, they will tell you that we essentially evolved from apes and prior to that amphibians and prior to that bacteria, going back to one ball of gas. If you speak to someone who studies the Bible, someone who comes from a spiritual perspective, they'll tell you a human being is, as the Bible says, was created in the divine image. So we're essentially divine creatures sent here for a purpose. We're not here by accident. We're not here just for survival of the fittest and to take care of our own needs. We're here to give, to love, to share, to build. It's very two, it's very, two very different perspectives. I think that it, uh, you, you must identify your, your perspective if you want to understand what is going on. Because like I say, put it this way, if we are no more than machines, me, we human beings, then of course robots will be built that will be better than us. Just like there are robots today and machines that can beat any human being at chess because the machines can, can crunch information better than we can, faster and more efficient. But if we are souls, meaning we have higher transcendent purpose, which is not predictable and not something you can quantify like you do material or physical objects, then the human being is, is a very, very different entity. 
And I think that's very much what AI is doing, is forcing us to answer this question. What defines you as a human being? What defines intelligence? Is it simply the power to subdue animals and to control your environment? Or is there something deeper as what we have, what role we have to transform this universe? And I think when you go with that mission-centric approach, then all the rest become tools to get there. But if you go with an approach that's survival of the fittest, that my needs are most important more than anything, then of course, then of course machines can be more powerful because you've lost a sense of your own identity. So I think it's really an identity issue. How, how important is community in the cultivation of the soul? And have you, uh, what have you witnessed in terms of community, the, the kind of like level of health in community, be it in your own community or broadly in America? And if someone is feeling like they're struggling with, with finding that, what would be your advice to them? Well, the first part of your question is talk about community. Um, we human beings are social creatures. We are social creatures. We need companionship, we need friendship, we need support, we need someone to lean on. I mean, the very essence of marriage relationships is about that type of connection, including intimacy. So, of course, for a person to be a complete person, including spiritually active and spiritually healthy, we need each other. But community is never meant to replace our individuality. It's meant to be like a synergetic effect, a synergy where we have more than the sum of the parts. We support each other. Think of it like different musical notes in a music musical composition. Each are necessary, and together they create something greater than the sum of the parts. So that's essentially what community means in a spiritual world, in spiritual environments. That You must have it because we each also, we cross-pollinate, and we each contribute a piece that the other doesn't have. And that way we all empower and enrich each other. Um, and that's the way I would approach community. If you could repeat the second half of your question, I don't. It, that, that definitely hit the first part of it. The second part of it is focused on someone who's struggling for community. What in, in, in you know, 30, definitely 100 years ago, it seems like a kind of ridiculous uh, problem to have. We, we, we were, community did not seem to be something that people uh, did not have or did, uh, struggled to obtain. But as we move toward a world where remote work is very a common thing, where individuals don't live where they grew up, this seems to be actually a, a skill that uh, people, people need to first be aware of what you just described, that it's important, you need this to thrive. And then once they realize it's important, they got to figure out how, how, how to do it. So what is your advice to someone who's struggling trying to find community? Well, I would first try to identify why, what the struggle con constitutes. In other words, is it a struggle because they have difficulty trusting a community because communities have uh, betrayed them or have uh, disappointed them? Or is it simply uh, they live isolated, like in some suburb? or somewhere where they don't have access to others. So I would like to identify, because if it's psychological or emotional, then we have to get beyond and say, okay, we need to find uh, the right environment that is trustworthy. 
I find a lot of people are are lost trust in communities because they feel communities have hurt them. Either they have uh, put too much pressure on them, or that that we spoke earlier about conformity, or just communities can be very oppressive if they're very demanding. Um, and there, I would say, find a community that has an open mind to this. Explore. If it's more of a matter of your own geography, so you have to ask the question: Can you realistically move? You know, I know people live very remotely, and I ask them, "Can you move?" And some say, "Yes." You know what? I could move. Sometimes it's hard because you're you're in your comfort zone, but it's not good to live too isolated, because at the end of the day, we are humans. We need each other, and Zoom is not enough. You need to have interaction. I mean, look, every one of us spent nine months in our mother's womb. We don't need more interaction than that. You're completely engulfed, completely submerged in the embryonic fluids of your mother's womb. And at early age in our life, we need contact. We need a mother, a father, a cuddling, embracing, hugging. And throughout life, that's what we need. So for persons living too isolated, I would say you have to explore the option of perhaps moving somewhere where there are more people. I mean, this, this is sometimes very practical. And then I would look to identify what the resistance is there. And sometimes it simply comes down to the status quo, like inertia. You're just stuck in your place. And that's not good because you want to always be able to move and be flexible. Have you ever contemplated moving to Israel? Is that, did that, that idea, that uh, potential move pop into your uh, decision matrix at any point? I've definitely been invited to move to Israel many times by different people, especially people I've impacted, students, and uh, and and uh, readers of mine. Um, I've never really entertained to go there. I mean, I love Israel. I've traveled and been there many, many times. I feel sometimes that where I am, I'm fulfilling my mission at its best. And trust me, I, I reach many people in Israel as uh, well as there are many people who live in Israel today because of the inspiration that I offered them. I'm not taking credit. I'm just pointing out. So right now, I think that my mission is most fulfilled where I am. And through, especially through technology, I'm able to reach everywhere. And I'm not, and I, have, I've li- I live a mission-centric life. I'm not looking for a life that makes me comfortable, meaning I have to find a place where I'm going to be most comfortable. I'm pretty adaptable. I could be comfortable anywhere. So I'm driven much more by what is my mission? Where am I needed most? Not where I want to be most. Where I want to be, yeah, I may want to be in Israel, want to be in some type of climate where you can uh, just have all the luxuries, all the spiritual luxuries, and, and you know have all the restaurants and have everything you want. But that's not how I've been trained. I'm trained more where am I needed most. And I think where I am is where I'm needed most. And I reach others through technology. I mean, most people I reach are not living within my proximity. Most people I reach are outside or very far away from me. So that's how it's worked out for me. In terms of travels, uh, how how important has that been in terms of your overall fulfilling your mission? Well, travel is tremendous because uh, travel, uh, you learn about other cultures and about other peoples and other nations. So I've traveled quite extensively and I've learned tremendous things. Uh, frankly, wherever I've ever been, I learned from even travels in the United States or closer home because people are so diverse. It's so rich and so beautiful to see the diversity out there. That teaches me the most. And then there are the things we also have in common, no matter how far we are from each other. 
We all want a happy life. We want to have healthy children. We want to have happy relationships, fulfilling relationships, some purpose in our lives. So travel has op opened my, uh, expanded my horizons and opened my um, vistas, if you wish, to understand people, different cultures. I find it fascinating how different people deal with problems in their own particular way. And we really can learn from each other. I, I think the Jewish people, uh, we've been great at embracing change uh, and specifically technology for innovative thinkers. Israel, as we were discussing, is a nation that has it's a wonderful case study of that. Uh, if someone is out there thinking about, hey, I, I want to be optimistic about this, this technology, I want to find ways to capitalize on it. And specifically in terms of my spiritual journey, what what are some thoughts you would provide that person? So I again, to me, technology was never a uh, what should I say, if a uh, a luxury or a, um, uh, a a gimmick, you know, to have fun with. To me, it was always about advancing my efforts. Like you know, it could take you an hour to walk somewhere take a bicycle or another vehicle, it could take you 10 minutes. It, I used to use a typewriter. It took me hours and hours to type something. Now I use a word processor. So I think if we understand technology not as an end in itself, but essentially as an instrument, an aid, a support to what you're doing, and if you're doing something noble, the technology will advance that. If you're doing something nonsensical, the technology will also advance that. Is that what you want? So I see AI and all of the modern, the newest technologies as tools that can help advance our cause. If they can, for example, save us time in, in writing a uh, letter or save us time in research, by all means, but make sure it's toward a good end and make sure that you're using the free time for something positive. You know, I met someone recently said to me, I have so much free time now that I use AI, I have even more free time, and I only use it for destructive purposes. So I have more time to get into trouble. Now, I'm not telling you not to use it, but it's important. I think my technology challenges us to put our priorities in place. You know, like people talk about relationships. Has technology really helped marriages? Has it helped companionships? Has it helped friends? So I would say the answer is very simple. If you have love in your life, technology is great. You can write a love letter. You can communicate with someone you love, even if they're thousands of miles away. But if you have no love in your life, technology is not going to solve it for you. As a matter of fact, it may make it more complicated because people use technology to create the illusion of love. You know, technology like, oh, I have friends everywhere. But it's not true. You're not really connecting. You know, so, so technology has to be seen as a, an aid, an aid, a support to who you are and what you stand for. And the first question you have to ask yourself, who am I? What's my purpose in life? And then how do I use technology to advance that purpose? I like that phrasing of what do you stand for? If, if you were asked a question by, by someone who was unfamiliar with the Jewish people and said, what do the Jewish people stand for? What do you, you and all the other Jewish people stand for? What, what's your answer to that? Well, the Jewish people in general, uh, and then there's individual. The Jewish people in general stand for being divine agents that come into a, a world, a material world, where it's so easy 
to just follow the drive of your own self-interest, greed, narcissism, selfish pursuits. And the Jewish people came to reverse that process, starting with Abraham, introduced that we're here. No, we're here to give. We're here to bring love. We're here to bring light. We're here to create a divine home in a material world. That's the Jewish people in general. And frankly, it's meant to be a mission that should spread to all people, to all 8 billion people on earth. Now, each individual has to find their unique way of doing so. I do so through my writing, through my teaching, through my speaking, through the, using this platform, which I commend you for, that we are here to communicate a message of love, a message of... So basically, we are spiritual agents. Like they say, we're not physical beings on a spiritual journey. We're spiritual beings on a, phys on a physical journey to transform the physical into the spiritual. So this podcast is called Search for Das. I deliberately chose that name because after learning about the concept of DOS, it seemed to encapsulate what seems to be the higher purpose of our, our spiritual journey. And I, since, since naming it Search for DOS, I've gotten the question of what does DOS mean? I've fumbled through trying to uh, explain it myself. I would love for you to share with me and to everyone listening, what does DAS mean to you? You know, DAS, by the way, in the beginning of technology was an operating system, right? DOS. Um, but DAS means to me, it's a Hebrew word that is the third of the cognitive faculties that refers to bonding. You know, you can have an idea, a creative idea, you can develop the idea, but then there's bonding with idea, a deep intimate connection where the idea resonates with you. So das is essentially resonating wisdom. Wisdom that isn't just right in the book. It's not just book smart, but it's also personal. It's, it's internalized, it's integrated, it's intimate. It's like when they say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Das is also caring intelligence, an intelligence that also includes an emotional component in it, meaning like emotional intelligence, not just abstract scientific ideas, but very personalized, very integrated, very connected with. And that's indeed the word. I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, the word for intimacy is das, meaning Adam knew Eve, das as a knowing. Knowing meaning bonding, intimately connecting with something in a very deep, profound way. That's the ultimate of Das. And that's why it says that the world will be free of destruction when the world will be filled with divine knowledge. Das. That's the word used. Divine Das. That will fill the world as the waters cover the sea. Meaning completely submerged, completely attached, completely connected. Today, there's a lot of talk about attachment. And we all need attachments, connections. Das is the connecting element that bonds you with uh, healthy ideas. Well, that's beautiful and very helpful as I think about how I communicate out what, what Das is. And in terms of the, 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 the soul, I want to return to that as we wrap up here. I, I think that really spending time trying to understand what soul means, especially in a Jewish context. I believe this is, these are your words, the flame of God. 
uh, little piece of the infinite that lies within you. Yeah. Could you could you talk about um, specifically moments? Let's take the past year where you you felt that flame of God. What what is? Could you put words to to that feeling? Because I think that especially people on the younger side, the the people who are a rebel without a cause right now, and they're 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 doubting whether or not they're feeling that that flame of God, that 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 piece of infinite that lies within. Could you put some words to describe what that feels like? So maybe someone says, you know, I did feel that, or I I will continue to search until I feel what Rabbi uh, Simon Jacobson just said. Absolutely. My op- the opening of my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, I answer that question. Literally, the first line is, I write, have you ever cried for no apparent reason? And then I write, have you ever just felt a surge of belonging that you couldn't really explain? This is the voice of your soul. So what I would say that divine spark is really your soul. And we have to define how does the soul express itself in our lives? So I'll give just a few crying, not necessarily out of pain or out of sadness, but just a sense, an existential, sometimes you just feel a certain awe, or it can be a sense of awe. Things that are not quite quantifiable by the human brain or by any empirical uh, experience. Um, Other experiences of the soul is restlessness. The soul is like a flame, like a flickering flame. It's compared to the flame of the God, divine flame. So the restlessness that we have, healthy restlessness, the need to grow, the need to go beyond, not to have animal bliss where you're just completely comfortable. Some healthy form of angst. I'm not saying anxiety. I'm not talking about extreme forms. Think of the heartbeat. It's like a, a, cardio, a cardiogram is a wave. So the soul is a wave. That's the sign of life, movement. There's a f- sense of movement, of mobility. Other times, the soul can also express itself through anxiety. Anxiety is the soul that's being starved, and that's it, it speaks to you. Just as the body speaks to you through hunger or through fatigue, the soul speaks to you, I'm anxious because something's missing. Soul is also a sense of purpose and meaning in life. When you sense that need to have more than just survive, more than just to pay your bills, something that's beyond what's my purpose, why I'm here. And finally, we know there's an expression, I think it's in Les Rap. That to see the to love another is to see the face of God. When you love somebody, really love somebody unconditionally, without strings attached, not for selfish purposes, that's another way your soul expresses itself. So these are just some ways that that spark of the divine expresses itself expresses itself in your life, and it's critical for you to fan those flames and make sure to manifest them and actualize them. Powerful. Being able to put words to that is remarkable, and I appreciate you doing that. And I want to fully wrap up here with some rapid-fire questions. And the first one is, what is your favorite book that does not come from the Jewish tradition? That's a good question. Um, I mentioned Les Miserables is a good book. Uh, I would say Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. It's a great book that uh, I think, uh, remember as a, as a teenager, I loved The Count of Monte Cristo or The Tale of Two Cities, some of those classics. I mean, the list goes on. I've, I've, I've read quite a few books, but you're just telling me like, you know, just 
rapid fire. These are some that come to mind. Um, there was a book by Samuel Butler, Samuel Butler called The Way of All Flesh, How Parents Can Hurt Their Children. <laughs> that was an intense book. And then, of course, I read a lot of psychological books, The Courage to Heal. Um, I happen to also be an avid reader, have been an avid reader of psychedelic literature. So that's very intriguing to me, even though I'm not an advocate of psychedelics, but I I very always drawn to Altered States of Consciousness, so The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary's The Politics of Ecstasy, just some names that come my way. You just put together a really good list. <laughs> With that, that should be published there. Next question, favorite city in Israel to visit? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Jerusalem is, of course, the obvious answer because of its history, but Hebron, Sfat, um, actually, I love every city in Israel, every stone, every flower. There's something about it. The, the deep, rich, long history saturates the country. So remember when I was a teen, when I was around 14 years old, I, I traveled to Israel for the first time. I went everywhere. I ate it all up. I remember the caves up in northern Israel, went down south in Eilat, the heat. Israel is a very interesting, diverse country. People don't realize how many different climates there are from the mountainous ranges to the desert ranges. And uh, you know, I mean, Tel Aviv, of course, is a bustling city. The beaches, the waters of Israel. But uh, that's just my short list. If you're walking around, you've got your headphones on, what's the genre of music that's probably playing? Yeah, off the record or on the record? <laughs> uh, give me both. Well, uh, off the record, I'm a very, I love music. So I've, I listen to every type of music. When Napster came out, remember Napster? Of course. So when Napster first started digitalizing music and making it all available, everything was free. I actually spent hours downloading from every country on earth, every type of music. I remember Azerbaijan, Armenia, all the way to Zambia. From A to Z, I, I was just fascinated by the different types of music from every country. So I'm very, very wide range. You know, there are the classics, obviously the classical music of uh, of a Mozart, a Bach, a Beethoven, a Chopin, and so on. I like that stuff. I Later in my years, I learned a little about jazz and its particular voice and its nature. I was never very into heavy metal or rap. It was very violent for me. Like it felt, it felt very, um, not that I, under, I understand its power, but it was like too, wasn't peaceful. Um, obviously the classics like the rock classics, whether it's Elvis Presley or the Beatles or uh, Bob Dylan or the Stones, I'm familiar with that quite, I like some of that. And I had my period where I liked ABBA, even though it's more like bubblegum music. Um, but, um, but then there's the more complex uh, music that I've heard over my, over the years. Um, on the Jewish side of things where I grew up, my tr tradition, this is Chabad especially, there's tremendously very powerful, uh, very I would even call them meditative type of chants and music that touches very deep parts of the soul. Songs like Shamil or the, I'm just throwing out some names, or Yala or Kihine um, um the Pastach, Stavya um, Pitu. Uh, I mean, these these are songs probably many people are not familiar with, but since you asked, I'm just throwing that out. They're just a very um, 
They reflect deep spiritual longing. Those are probably the purest type of music that I've heard. But as you see, it's pretty diverse. That is another great list that should be published. And I think music is a really good place for this to end. Rabbi Simone, Simon Jacobson, thank you so much for coming on Search for DOS. My great pleasure to be with you. It was really nice. Thank you so much. Excellent questions. Really did a good job. And I commend you for this, what you're doing. And it should always go well, Tyler. Much success in these podcasts and, and the reach. May it reach as many people as possible. Thank you so much for your blessing. And I look forward to continuing the conversation at some point. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.